0: Spectacular because uh, I'm usually bug bait and, uh, you know, bare legs, no mosquitoes, no gnats biting me, sun shining, everything is at peace in the world, you know, God is on the throne, life is perfect, rhetorically. And I clearly thought everything has a context and uh, You know, if somebody just came to Alaska today and they were having breakfast with me and sitting out on my porch, they would have a pretty skewed idea of what living in Alaska around the clock 24-7, 365, would be like. But if that's just what they experience, they would think, man, Alaska's paradise. You know, there's no bugs, it's not cold, it's sunny, but it's not hot. And they would have a distorted view. And uh, distorted views is a big reason Jesus preached and taught the Sermon on the Mount. And if you study it, if you read it, you realize the whole three chapters he's correcting the distorted view or the, the misconceptions or the mistakes his audience, primarily Jewish but not entirely immediate audience disciples but not entirely Um, greater circle of audience would be just the crowds and so that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount or at least one of the things that it's about is he's correcting wrong thinking Um, so we'll get into that now we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 if you have a Bible and I hope you do Uh, You can open it uh, or click on it, open it, Um, or you could find one if you don't have one. There's some back there and there may be some around. Um, But uh, I will pray and we'll get started. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for great, great blessings, like the weather today, like the fact that Spencer is celebrating his birthday and uh, we have been blessed by him for each of us a different amount of time. Um, I'm going to assume Betty would be at the top of that list um, since that's his mother. She is his mother, Lord. But we thank you for Spencer. Thank you for the blessing that he is. Um, And we thank you for everybody else here. Everyone's birthday, everyone's uh, participation. They're just one-time visitor or regular decades-old family member of this fellowship, We are grateful. And uh, we are grateful to your word. We're grateful to you, Lord Jesus, for your teaching. And so I pray now you be glorified in our time, in the next 40 minutes or whatever. Um, Spirit of God, we ask you to open our minds, enlighten us to see the truth of your word. Even as you gave sight to the blind and opened the ears of those who couldn't hear, I pray, God, spiritually, you make us sharp and aware of your spiritual truth in your word, that it would not be uh, hard for us to discern, and that our hearts would not be otherwise preoccupied. Be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Okay, so um, to me, everything is about context, especially the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about context context and the more you study it the more you realize what may seem like a, a strange smattering of of spiritual truth or concepts the more I have studied it the more it just flows very naturally and it's kind of me who's the one who didn't get that to begin with um, but okay so so just some brief basic stuff um, with Bible study in Matthew uh, you could put that first one up Joel yeah Um, this is basic Bible study concepts wherever you turn whether it's in Leviticus or Matthew 5 these are things you should think who what where when why who who is taught or who is talking what is the setting the circumstance where when is is this being taught is it Moses teaching it In the desert, or is it Jesus teaching it, or the Apostle Paul teaching it in Athens, and why? What is uh, the concept? And um, the, the answers to those are in the next slide. Who's talking? Jesus. He's talking to the disciples and a greater group of the crowds. And there's the verses that would say that. What he's proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom, that came a couple times in the preceding chapters. He's in Galilee. And he, even that, if you know that, it's like, why is he in Galilee? If, if you know the word in the Gospels, you'll know why he's in Galilee. Um, when it's the beginning of his ministry, not the brand new first part of his ministry, but it's generally what's recognized as the beginning of his roughly three-year ministry. And why? The disciples uh, and his purpose. So, He's teaching for the benefit of the disciples and etc. Okay, and he's teaching on this kingdom. And the kingdom, as you know, is this shocking new kind of concept. Still is, for most people. But it was then. They had a bunch of assumptions about the kingdom. So Jesus is teaching them about this kingdom and it's like, you know, it's not always sunny with no bugs in Alaska. It's that kind of a thing. He's correcting uh, their, their mistaken thoughts. And uh, later in Matthew, oh, the, the, the kingdom in one word, I, I selected that. I thought, well, if you were to describe the kingdom of God in one word, I don't know what word you would think of, but unexpected was a word that came to my mind. And the kingdom itself wasn't unexpected. The people wanted the kingdom. They wanted the king. They wanted Messiah. They were sick and tired of Roman rule after centuries of other Greek rule and Egyptian rule and Assyrian rule and Babylonian rule and all this. So the timing wasn't necessarily unexpected. It was more the manner in which the kingdom came. In um, Matthew chapter 13, he teaches a bunch of parables and uh, so we can go to that one. In each of those parables, he says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he'll teach a parable. A parable is when, especially a biblical parable, is when Jesus took a familiar concept and then used it to teach something that was not familiar. So, you know, that's why he talked about... Uh, the parable of the lost sheep, let's say, would be one. Not, I don't think that's one there, but um, people understood sheep. They understood sheep wandered off. And so he would start with that and then teach usually a, a deep spiritual truth, starting with the parable. So in these uh, parables that I've selected there, um, the parable of the sower, I tried to identify... What's the key concept? That's good advice, by the way, With parables. Look for the one dominant kind of thing. And that will help you not misinterpret and misapply parables. Parables are, are structures or figures of speech. Um, so I, I tried to pick the one major concept and a, a mistaken idea like it's always sunny in Alaska. You know, and there's no bugs. A mistaken idea in the hearer's head that he seemed like he was trying to correct. Now let me just tell you, this is my version. Okay, I'm just a student of the word like we all are, different degrees. But there's nothing really super inspired about my interpretation of these things. I just have given you my viewpoint on this because it's very helpful. And just to be honest... You know, I'd I like to get up here and preach and teach and stuff. But uh, I ain't all that, if you know what I'm saying. I, I mean, I'm not. I can just share you what I got. My desire, I know is Spencer and Tom and Steve's desire, is that you get tools needed to become a student of the Word, that you feed yourself spiritually. God has given teachers in the church for a reason. And preachers and the other uh, offices in the church. But, you know, I'm not always here trying to give you all the answers, if that makes sense. What I'm really trying to do is throw a little wood on the fire and I'm hoping and praying, Lord, that it will have that effect on you and that you will want to get in the word. But, um, okay, so uh, the parable of the sower, to me, it's about different responses to the gospel of the kingdom. It's not technically about salvation and whether or not you can lose your salvation. That's not even close to what it's about. It's about different ways people respond. The misconception would have been the Jewish the Jewish people then would think the kingdom is for all Jews, and G- Jesus teacher teaches there's four different types of soil, and only one of them is really fruitful. The parable of the weeds. The key concept is the the. The crop, the wheat, and the weeds are intermingled. So, a, a misconception he's correcting is that of segregation. You know, the Jews were always big on, we are the chosen people. And if you know that parable, Jesus says, don't go running in the field pulling up all the weeds. The angels will take care of that at the appropriate time. So, you know, so there is this mingling. Of You could say the true church and the not true church or the, the sheep and the wolves or whatever idea you want to use. That's a very important one. It likely applies to our church. It certainly applies to Christian, Christianity and Christian churches throughout all time. There are weeds growing with the, the wheat. Uh, the mustard seed parable, if you remember that one, a tiny little grain grows to be a big tree. So uh, the key concept is that the kingdom starts with a very small beginning, with a carpenter from Nazareth in a little backwater place called Judea. I mean, that's pretty mustard seed if you think about it. Um, The misconception he's correcting is the unmistakable onset of the kingdom. The Jews were expecting, you know, the conqueror rides in on a chariot and slays the enemies. And, you know, the kingdom is here. And that's what he's... It, uh, a wrong thinking that he's working on. Uh, leaven, that parable is about permeating. And again, it's very similar to the mustard seed one. Uh, it's, it's about an immediate impact. Uh, the, the leaven has a beginning, but it's not totally obvious. And it continues to leaven the whole batch of flour. And so it's a very similar kind of concept to the one before it. The the Jews, again, expected this dramatic kingdom. You know, it's like we are done with the old way. The king has come. And the Romans are out of here and we're back on top, just like in David's time. Uh, The treasure, the concept, it's hidden value, misconception, explicit and obvious. And Jesus clearly teaches. It's like the kingdom is like this treasure and a man finds it in a field And he sells all he has to buy that field because the treasure is that valuable to him. It's compelling. He must have it. So it's about uh, the value of the the treasure, the kingdom. But it's also about it's not always explicit and obvious. I mean, this treasure was there. Now, a good example of misappropriating or misapplying scripture would be Oh, okay, so I could, if I'm in real estate, I'll look for something that's got a lot of hidden value that nobody knows about, and I'll try to give a lowball offer, and then I can make a fortune on it. See what I'm saying? Because a lot of people would say, well, he found the treasure, and he buried it back up, and then he went and bought the field. He didn't tell the whoever owned the field. That's totally not what this parable is about. Uh, the pearl, this one also is similar. A unique pearl, a merchant... Basically, his life's purpose was to find the perfect jewel or gem or pearl, and he finds it. The misconception he's correcting is unrestricted benefits. Uh, the, the Jews all figured they get all the benefits of being in the kingdom of the Messiah because they're Jewish. And it's like, uh, no, nope, not really. And there's, you know, again, there's other misconceptions. The value of the kingdom is really big on those two. You know, that whoever the, the seeker is understands the great value, the importance of the kingdom. So much that you would give up all you have to get it. That should not be missed. And then the dragnet, um, he said the kingdom of, is like a dragnet. It'd be like uh, maybe ground fishermen in Alaska or something. I think that's what it's called. Where they use a big dragnet and they pull it in and then they just try to save all the cod or whatever it is they were after and they toss out whatever they toss out. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, the key concept is from all, some are saved. Some are kept. So in that parable, it's about fishing. They get a bunch of different kinds of fish and then they select the good fish and discard the stuff that has no value. And again, the misconception would be exclusive admittance. The Jews all figured they're in the kingdom. And it would be unthinkable for them to imagine when the kingdom is fully consummated that the king himself would say to a Jew, I never knew you. Depart. I never knew you. So, okay, so that's what's going on in uh, Matthew. And then we get to the end of the first page of my wonderful notes which uh, <clears throat> to clarify for Spencer you will notice there is an entire back page that's blank so there is plenty of room for you to take additional notes but then I got to confess that's only because I did this on my printer and I don't know how to do a half sheet yeah. <laughs> so, so, otherwise you, you would have been right on the money uh, no, if you need line paper, <laughs> it's out by the door. Okay, so uh, at the bottom of that, your insert there, Jesus wants to change the way I think. I think he does, yes. And that's how I meant to, for that to read. We live in a time, I cannot say this enough, we're going to get into some other stuff here in a second, how much our time, our culture is infecting all of us. We are in it and we have to realize number one There's a whole bunch of stuff going on around me that has an adverse effect to me That ain't good and I need to be aware of that If you don't get that you never you're going to be the frog. We're going to look at in a minute But number two then I need to go to someone above and beyond me someone who's more capable than me to change the way I think now that seems obvious, right? But in practice, man, if you really get that and start to implement that in your life, it is absolutely transforming. Um, one of the things we teach and will teach in, with some of the inmates we work with is thinking errors. And the first, I may have mentioned this before, the first thinking error, error of primary importance is like, well, no, I got it. And, you know, so if you want to teach me something, I'll listen to what you have to say, but I'm the ultimate authority. And until you can get someone to realize, I'm not at the top of the heap here. You know, there's people faster, stronger, smarter, richer, (laughs) whatever the thing is. But especially when it comes to true knowledge, unless we develop an attitude of humility and it's like, I don't really got this. I need some help here. Those are the people who came to Jesus, not just for healing or not just for a free lunch. Those were the ones who got transformed. Those were the true disciples. And uh, I I would totally encourage that right there. Everything I've taught up to this point on the Sermon on the Mount, if you get that, Jesus wants to change the way you think. He wants to. There's very... It's with fear and trepidation that I will say, thus says the Lord. But I will say it on that one, thus says the Lord. He wants to change the way you think. It's here in the Sermon on the Mount, at one point he says, do not think, and then he goes on. And it's throughout scripture, and uh, one of our favorite passages is Romans twelve one and 2, right? Don't be conformed as you're the frog sitting in the kettle and You're thinking that, you know, Alaska is always all warm sunny days and no mosquitoes. Don't be conformed by the world. Don't let the world press in. And it's relentlessly pressing in. Relentlessly. And in many ways than you or I even understand. There's people way smarter than us that do things on the internet or in advertising or in other media or in the business world way, way smarter than us. So don't think that you can stand alone and call the shots in your own life. If you don't come to Christ in position of humility continually, and that's what part of this should be about. It's like, Lord, I don't got this, but you do. You did it. And you know, if I follow you, I'm remembering what you did for me. That's transforming. Many Christians, many religious people throughout history are continually led astray. Many who go by the name of Christian. Right? I mean, you've heard Spencer talk about how few churches really preach the gospel. And we're not about some kind of exclusive thing at ABF. But it's shocking how the message of the gospel gets more and more diluted. And that's a beautiful thing of what Brian's going to be doing in a two months october three months is is bringing that gospel into focus and how we should be able to clearly communicate the gospel to another person you know i just gotta say I, i love you guys you're my church family but if we're not doing that why are we here why are we here Jesus did not save me so I could make the most money possible, live the best life possible, get all the artificial joints and stuff as long as I possibly could to keep, you know, doing whatever I want and then die. No. His blood is far more precious than something that trivial. He saves me and he saves you for a divine, Holy Spirit charged, empowered purpose. And this is what it's all about. And This world is seductive, and I don't just mean sexually seductive, it is seductive. There's so much fun to be had. There's so much. I mean, the the bucket list kind of approach to life is endless, because we live in a wealthy society. If we lived in another society, different part of the world, we'd be focused on just trying to eat, stay alive, and hope our child doesn't die of the flu, or something like that. But we have a divine purpose, and that is exactly why Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom has come to a degree, in an initial kind of phase, and he is teaching them what it's about and how it's to work. And I can't read the rest of that stuff. Um, uh, Okay, then the Beatitudes, uh, ultimate happiness, and this is kind of the title that I had Ultimate happiness comes at a cost. What's the secret to being happy and fulfilled? The whole world around us is seeking happiness, right? And most people assume wealth equals happiness. Except the people that are really rich. And I think a lot of them would say, nah, not, don't always work that way. I'm assuming because I don't have any friends in that category. But, that, but you hear a lot about that. That, you know, it's like people believe... That wealth will give happiness. And in reality, it's just as empty, you know, like they say, there's never a funeral procession pulling a U-Haul trailer or something. I mean, we, we, like Job said, we, we leave as we came. Yeah, so it, it would be very temporary at best. So ultimate happiness and fulfillment. People, when they get to my age in life especially, a lot of people start thinking, man, what's my legacy? What am I leaving behind? And if they are the kind of people that have unlimited wealth, they usually form some kind of foundation or you know, humanitarian kind of thing that will live on after them. But when they're dead, they're dead. They're gone. And so we live, this is part of our cultural context, we live in a world that desperately, desperately is seeking happiness and fulfillment. The only thing is, it's not cool to admit it. You're supposed to act like you got it all figured out, right? Isn't that the world we live in? You're supposed to be like, nah, I got this, I know who I am, I know what I'm doing, I'm on track. The beauty of jail ministry is at least some of the guys there are like, you know, I don't think I'm as smart as I thought I was. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) whew! Good, because if you don't get it now, you ain't never going to get it. And That's, I'm just saying. But, yeah, we live in a world where the law-abiding people who aren't going to jail, generally, they're looking for happiness. And they're looking for fulfillment. And it's not, they ain't going to get it. You know, cars and houses and trips and all that, I'm not against all of that. But that will not bring it. So, uh, okay, so the Beatitudes, ultimate happiness, that's the word. Blessed means happy, not situationally based happy, like the common usage of our word, happy. It's the biblical concept, meaning it's a a, a blessed, joyous, awesome state that's not dependent upon the stuff around me. That's in the Beatitudes, that's what that means. Um, Characterized with spiritual poverty, mourning, humility, hunger and thirst, mercy, purity of heart, peace, and persecution. Well, how's that for an alternative kind of theory for life? You want to be totally happy and find fulfillment? You need to be spiritually poor. You need to be mourning and grieving. you got to be totally humble in a world of pride. Uh, You have to hunger and thirst, and he will meet that hunger and thirst but then it's kind of like drinking salty water it's gonna make you thirsty again so you're gonna hunger and thirst for more as long as you're in this body Uh, mercy you got to show mercy instead of you know what goes around comes around you get what you deserve your heart has to be pure and it consists of peace and persecution especially the persecution murder is in the mind this is parts we talked about before sexual sin is in the heart divorce is not a matter of choice taking an oath is of the devil and now i am expected to treat enemies with love and abusers with generosity i mean that's kind of weird right would you ever hear this kind of a message anywhere except in a biblical church i want to be happy Okay, well, you kill people in your mind. You're committing sexual sin in your heart. You can't decide if you want to divorce somebody or not based on the scripture there. Now, I always like to say, you know, we make a lot of mistakes in life. I never, when we talk through stuff, I never mean to bring condemnation on any of us if we've, we've all sinned. And if we've sinned in a specific way or there was a situation we didn't really have many options in, understand I love you. I'm not judging anybody okay i'm not bringing condemnation but divorce is not a matter of my choice taking an oath according to jesus is of the devil and now i'm expected to treat enemies with love and abusers with generosity now rightly so anybody would be kind of hesitant right i would hope so (laughs) unless you're so conditioned to the bible that you don't even give it a thought Anybody would be hesitant. Tell me why this is so important? Hell. That's my that's my portrayal of hell. Because Jesus said was it 520? Um in 520 where are you 520? okay, so this is under anger and committing murder in your heart and he says um, it's the importance of being reconciled and showing love for others, he says, you know, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, and then with the lust he says the same thing, for it is better to use, for you to lose one of your members, part of your body than your whole body to go into hell and then in, I guess that's it um, and then later in this Sermon on the Mount is when he says, "You know, Lord, Lord, we did this and we did that, and we—I gave money and I did communion every week, and you know I went to the right church and I know all the good conservative theology and doctrine." And he could say, "Depart from me, for I never knew you." And if you get nothing out of that one verse, please get this: it was a surprise for the people who hear it. There's not one of them is like, well, I figured you'd say that, Jesus. Okay, well, off to hell I go. It will it will be a surprise for those. But we will look at that later. So this is why it's important. And this is why Ray Comfort stuff is so much whatever it is. Because you don't mess around with that. Because that is really this is a passing away thing, you know, the sunny day. No mosquitoes in Alaska is passing, right? I mean, this could be the last good day of summer. Who knows? It's passing. It will go. We know that. But we should also know from Scripture, all of this life is passing away. And when it's done, it's done. And it's either you will be with me in paradise, the king said, or depart from me, I never knew you. God forbid we would hear that. Okay, so... I think, is a frog the next one? Just toss it up there, whatever it is. Okay, individualism. Um, actually, give me the the two frogs, if you would, Joel. You guys are probably all familiar with the concept, the frog and the kettle, right? And as I research that, there's a lot of debate on if that's even actually true. Well, this is not a science class, so I don't really care if it's true or not. But the concept is super important. If you haven't heard about it, the idea is you could put a frog in a kettle of water, that's the temperature that he likes, and then slowly keep turning up the heat, and the frog won't jump out of the kettle. Because that slow change, the frog will get cooked. Whether or not that's true is irrelevant. The, the point is very valid. Change happens really slow. When change happens fast, people get pretty cranky. They're aware of it. COVID, right? You what? You're going to close our church? You what? You expect me to put on a mask to go to Fred Meyer? What? Okay, nobody misses sudden change like that. But the slow change, the slow drift is the dangerous one. And so I thought I'd put this up there. Are you comfy or getting cooked? And the irony of, with that analogy is it's the comfortable that get cooked. So we have to be as wise as serpents, right? And innocent as doves. We've got to be on the ball. Okay, so now I'm going to, if you, at this point, if you're still awake and paying attention, <clears throat> but you think, you know, Greg, it's your opinion, dude. Okay, I tried to find two totally objective, scientific, ish kind of definitions. Individualism. All right. Hopefully you can read this. And this, let me just preface, comes from the University of Portland, their International Student Services regarding American values and assumptions. So I got nothing to do with any of that other than I'm quoting them. So Portland University, as they train like international students who've come to America, this is one of the things they will teach them. The most important thing to understand about US Americans is probably their devotion to individualism. They have been trained from early in their lives to consider themselves separate individuals who are responsible for their own situations in life and their own destinies. They have not been trained to see themselves as members of a close-knit, Tightly interdependent family, religious group, tribe, nation, or other group. Now, if you're kind of a conventional, whatever that means, American, you probably don't even get any of this. But if you have a different ethnicity, different background, you've lived in another culture, you would probably be keenly aware of this. We value our individual rights. This whole COVID thing, the big war over COVID, all came down to that, right? My rights, my rights, and so to understand the 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 frog water that we're in, you have to grasp this: that the world is pressing in upon you, your own individual identity and rights and value as an individual. It's relentless. And if you think I'm overstating this, have you ever lived in a neighborhood where somebody who looked different than you had a whole bunch of people living in their house? Have you? Yeah. So, this it's because this is more you, and that last part is somebody of a different background, ethnicity. And, um, you know, they may feel that it's really important for the whole family to live together. They don't care how many... There's 15 people in an apartment or something. It's family. That's who they are. That's their identity. It doesn't make one right or wrong. But you have to be aware that in American culture, you're being saturated with that. And if you still don't understand why that's important, look at what our church has been through in the last six months. It's right there right there they don't see themselves as members of a close-knit tightly interdependent family religious group tribe nation or other group before covid we were tight weren't we we were a family we were dedicated we were loyal to each other and then no no disrespect to those who have left or different opinions on covid that's not i don't even i don't care about that but that stressor fractured a lot of stuff that you can't debate and it's because that, I believe was greater than this okay, and the other one is truth decay, not tooth decay which I'm dealing with on my own but truth decay okay, and this comes from the RAND Corporation ever heard of them? okay, they're generally respected as whatever they are, I don't know a bunch of brains or something Okay, truth decay is defined as a set of four related trends. Increasing disagreement about facts and analytical interpretation of facts and data. So what they're saying is the decay of the concept of truth in America is eroding. And these are four reasons why. This is a Rand Corporation, this is not, you know, the pew in the pulpit organization or something. The first one is disagreement about facts and analytical interpretations. You ever follow like political debates, argument? Right? They can take the same facts and each side can prove that the other one is wrong. They're eroding the value of truth. Okay, number two, a blurring of the line between opinion and fact. A while back I was teaching about opinion, conviction, belief, and truth. And because of this whole individualism thing that's rampant in our society, your opinion seems like truth. Let alone you just skip conviction and belief, which are all higher, more valuable concepts. A blurring of the line between opinion and fact. Number three, an increase in the relative volume and resulting influence of opinion and personal experience over fact. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. We become more and more truth is relative. That's my truth. It's not your truth. Now that's not biblical truth. But that's truth as we embrace it in American culture. Uh, Personal opinion and personal experience over fact. Somebody may say, oh, I don't believe in demonic possession. I don't think that happens anymore. Well, they might if they were sitting next to somebody who's possessed by the devil. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, how's your philosophy work out now? Or somebody might say, well, you know, I don't believe, you know, such and such, some other thing. And it's like, okay, but aren't you putting your personal experience over that, over truth? And the last one, a declining trust in formerly respected sources of factual information. I'm old enough to remember turning on the news. Didn't matter which one. And if the news said it, you believed it, right? If you're, if you're old enough, you'll remember that. It's like the news would give you the facts, they would tell you what happened. Now you shop for which news you think is going to give you the straightest story, and you still hold your own viewpoint over that. I'm not saying that's not required either. (laughs) But yeah, it's been totally declining trust in formerly respected sources of factual information. A Christian, a kid raised in a Christian home goes off to college, and they will erode... The truth that that kid was raised under, and tell them that their ancestor, the students' ancestors, were monkeys. You follow me? Yeah, it, it's the same thing. Now, why am I beating you over the head with all of this and I've hardly touched the Bible? Because that is the cultural soup that we're all living in. Kim and I have been cross cultural missionaries most of our lives. We've been fairly well trained in missions, uh, cultures, a lot of those kind of dynamics. So I would say we're more sensitive to those kind of issues than the average person in Anchorage. We have three daughters, none of them married a, quote, normal white man, if I can use that expression. They all married out of culture, one way or another. Which is not uncommon for missionary kids. (laughs) If you're familiar with that, that's not uncommon. But yeah, so my kids, uh, if somebody ever uh, confronts me about racism or something, I'm like, dude, you have no idea who you're talking to. I don't have one white grandchild. i got 11 grandkids. And just to be clear, I'm totally okay with that. You know, I don't have any expectations. I love it. It's awesome. But That's what you have to be aware of. We are living and working and hopefully evangelizing in this whole context. And so that's why Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. It's not always sunny and bug-free. And there are so many assumptions we have in this. So, verse 38 through 42 are the fifth and sixth Comparison Analogies or Correlations, where he's taking something, it's one of my favorite parts of the scripture, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, or you have heard it taught, but I say to you. That's exactly what he's doing, he's like, well you spent two days in Anchorage, and you know, you think it's sunny and bug free all the time, but I say to you it can be 40 below, for like a month at a time or whatever. Or the bugs can be so fierce you wish you were dead. Or whatever. You know, your assumption is not correct. And that's what he's doing. When you read through this, that's what he's doing. You've heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. Anger, murder starts in the heart. Lust starts, you know, in your heart. And you'd be better off gouging your eyes out. Uh, Divorce is not up to me to say, well, I'm not happy anymore, and God wants me happy. No. There's only one reason for divorce. He leaves it right there. Oaths, promises, he says, are of the devil. Anything more than this is, comes from evil. I remember first time, I think, after I moved into Anchorage, I got jury, summoned for jury duty, and I wouldn't raise my hand because I'm like, okay, I can find a Bible verse that basically... Well, get me out of jury duty. I'm just being honest. That was my real motivation. And um, I mean, I had a bunch of hectic stuff going on also. But it's like, I got to get out of jury duty. And so I didn't raise my hand when all the prospective jurors took the oath. And then the judge, like, and called the two attorneys back. He's like, what's up? And I said, well, you know, based on my religious beliefs. And he's just like, dude, I hear this all the time. He didn't say that, though. He's like... Did you hear the part when I said, will you swear or affirm? And I'm like, oh, you said that? I he's like, yeah. Like, ah. But anyway, they came to a plea agreement, and I didn't have to sit on the jury anyway. So all of these things, and now we get to the probably, well, maybe not, but likely the two hardest analogies of the six. And I'm briefly going to get into this one today, and then we'll finish this one and the other one next week. So, Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Seriously? Okay, let's take this from a concept that's in the Bible to real life. You you just read this, right? You've heard it said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, what kind of idealistic thing would that be but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other also well that's kind of a christian cliche i watched an old movie about gladiators i mean old like 60s about gladiators and one guy one gladiator shared the faith of christ with another one and this guy got saved and he's like tell me how you know blah 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 and then they were going to beat up the christian gladiator and the other gladiator comes over and he goes, I am no Christian, you know, and then he beats them all up. And then somebody else slaps one guy, and he's like, you know, and it was the invitation, you slap me on the other cheek, I fulfilled the command, and now you're toast. And this, yeah, this is how people will misappropriate this. And this is, this, that section right now is, right there is a passion for me. Because I'm kind of a pacifist. I can say that. And it's very critical that this gets applied correctly. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So someone's just going to say, give me your clothes, bro, and you're going to be naked? You know what I mean? Give everything away? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go within two miles. So if a kidnapper or somebody, give to the one who begs from you. Okay, we got a lot of people on street corners who are always asking for money. Does that mean Jesus expects me every time a guy standing, or woman is standing there with a cardboard sign I'm supposed to give them something? Is that what this means? And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Ah, we're out of time. So, I really hope you'll be here next week. Because it's it seriously is very important that we get a grip on those four things, there's four of them right there, understand them, understand the context, and then live by them correctly. So, in the meantime, I'd encourage you to read through this, do your study, do your homework, and Lord willing, I'll take my medication next Friday. <laughs> Spencer's probably going to be like, now nah, I've got to remind him of that too. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you. You are awesome, Lord. You are good. And uh, though we didn't get into the word nearly as much as we want to and would like to, I pray, Lord, that this sets kind of a foundation for the radical teaching that we're going to look at more next week. Pray, God, that uh, you, by your spirit, help us to hear it, to understand it, to be completely transformed by your work in our life and your word in our life. I ask your blessing on everybody here today that um, they would just walk in the joy of, of remembering your resurrection. And the power that we have as Christians because of that. Uh, thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.